On Tuesday nights, we've been in the book of Joshua, and we had the commander of the Lord's hosts. And I said that I believed that it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Yeshua. The reason I believe that is that incident forms a bookend with the burning bush. So Moses, when he sees the burning bush, the angel of the Lord talks to him, and he gets told, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And the events of Joshua form chiastic bookends to the events in Exodus. So you have people sitting behind a bloody door, and they are safe from the angel of death that passes over. At the other end of that, you have Rahab. And Rahab, when she talks to the spies, convinces them that Israel will not destroy her family, and the spies give her a crimson thread or a scarlet thread, which she ties on her window, and the spies explicitly say, everybody that is behind this crimson thread will be safe. Anybody who is outside of that is going to be killed. So you have a bookend there, if you will. You have a commander of the Lord's host where Joshua is told to take off his shoes. He's on holy ground. That becomes a bookend, if you will, to Moses and the burning bush, where he is told, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Israel leaves Egypt, goes into the wilderness through the water on dry ground, turns around, comes out of the wilderness, going through the Jordan River, which has been separated, and they also go through on dry ground. The manna starts when they go into the wilderness. The manna stops when they leave the wilderness. So everything in the book of Joshua, if you will, is a bookend to what happens in Exodus. And it's a closing of a chapter. So we've got this guy who's the commander of the Lord's hosts. And Joshua comes out there and says, are you for us or for our enemies? The guy says, no, I'm commander of the Lord's host. Joshua worships him. That is significant because what we find in Revelation is John, as he is rumbling around heaven, meets angelic beings. And John's reaction when he meets these angelic beings is to fall down and worship. And he immediately gets grabbed by the scruff of the neck, picked up and said, don't do that. I am a fellow created being. I do not accept worship. So the fact that the commander of the Lord host does accept worship, I am suggesting to you is significant. This is not just some random angelic being. Now, there's this guy I mentioned briefly in uh, service, a guy named James Kugel. He's written a number of books. As I say, he's a Jew. He's a believer. He's written a book, The God of Old. And his perspective there is the older parts of the Bible the relationship between God and his people is different than it is later in the Bible and is different than it is today. And what you have in the older parts of the Bible, and the older the part is, the more prevalent it is, is that it seems like the barrier between the spiritual and the physical is far more porous. And the poster child for this is Manoah. Manoah is the father of Samson. And his wife is out doing whatever wives do in the field. And this man comes up to her and says, this time next year you'll have a child. She's barren. And she goes to her husband and said, this guy showed up in the field and says, this time next year you're going to have a child. Now, 
there is every possibility that this guy will look at her and say, yeah, babe, what were you doing with that guy that you're going to have a child in a year? If you have a barren marriage and your wife waltzes in and says, I met this guy in the field and he says we're going to have a baby in a year, what is the natural supposition? So they go back out the next day and this man is still there. And Manoah says, are you the man my wife met? He says, I am. He says, did you tell her that she's going to have a child? He says, yes, I did. Well, can we know your name so that when the child comes, we may bless your name? He says, you can't know my name as it is wonderful. And Manoah says, let's do lunch. He says, I won't eat with you. So they bring food and the angel touches it with a staff and fire comes down from heaven and the angel goes up. And at that point, Manoah realizes that they have not been talking to some random guy in the field, but they've been talking to an angelic being. So in early parts of the Bible, this phenomenon where you're walking along, minding your own business, you start talking to somebody and, whoa, I'm not talking to a person here, I'm talking to something else. That happens over and over and over again. And the commander of the Lord's host is one, and I'm going to suggest to you Melchizedek is another. And I will suggest to you, by the way, that Yeshua on the road to Emmaus is yet another. It also happens to Daniel when he's in exile in Babylon. Angelic beings come and talk to him, Gabriel being one of them. So separation, if you will, between the spiritual and the physical seems, especially early in the Bible, to be far more porous than it seems to be today. And by the time you get to Yeshua, it's pretty much closed off. I mean, they say that 400 years there was no prophetic voice before the birth of Yeshua. So Genesis 14, 17. After his return from the defeat of Hedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shabeh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. One of the things we were talking about in Joshua is there is a king that comes for battle against Joshua. And his name is Adonai Zedok. And what Adonai Zedok means is, my Lord is righteous. Adonai, the Lord, Zedek, which is righteous. Melchizedek means Melech, the king, Zadok, is righteous. So it is entirely possible that Melchizedek is a title and not a name. Just like Pharaoh is a title, not a name. You, know, you have a sequence of Pharaohs, even though in Scripture it talks about Pharaoh as if it's a proper name. It's not. It's a title. So it's entirely possible that Melchizedek is also a title. He is the king of Salem. Salem is what is now and would become later Jerusalem. The name Jerusalem comes from two events. The first one is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Salem being peace, Shalem. The next one is the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. And what does Abraham say when the angel stays his hand from killing his son? It's going to be in next week's Torah portion. And Yehovah Yireh means God sees. So Jerusalem is Yireh Shalem seeing peace. And the name of the city comes from those two incidents, from Melchizedek, 
who shows up with bread and wine and greets Abraham, and from Abraham having his son rescued. I was going to next go to Psalm 110. So this is a Psalm of David, and it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is the second place in scripture where Melchizedek shows up. And we're going to go to Hebrews next because the book of Hebrews is essentially a commentary on Psalm 110. I'm not going to go through the whole book. I'm going to sort of skip like a stone through it. But one of the things that will be mentioned is the Lord says to my Lord. And in the book of Hebrews, what the book asserts is the one being spoken of there is Yeshua. And the question becomes, the greater always blesses the lesser. In other words, a father blesses his children, a king blesses his subjects. You don't bless up, you bless down. So the fact that Abraham gets blessed by this guy Melchizedek is an indication that this is somebody higher than Abraham. The fact that David calls him his Lord is also an indication that it is someone higher than David. But what's going to be said in the book of Hebrews is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. David is talking about his son, ten generations removed, who is Yeshua. So for David to call his descendant ten generations down, Lord, indicates that there is something about this descendant that makes him higher than David himself. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. David calls some descendant of his Lord, and he furthermore says that this descendant of his is going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So now let's fast forward to the book of Hebrews. So the deal here is that Yeshua is a man. And as a man, he is a brother. And we've talked about this lots of times, so most of you are very familiar with this. Who has dominion here on the earth? We do. God gave it to us. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, he gave us dominion. He never took it away. So one of the things that Yeshua says today's gospel reading is, I am the door of the sheep. Right? And anybody who comes into the sheepfold by any method other than the door is a thief and a robber. So what Yeshua says is in order not to be a thief and a robber, you've got to come in by the proper door. And the door is the womb of a woman. In other words, the only legitimate way for anybody to enter the earth is through natural birth. And that, by the way, is what the bloody door that Israel comes out of in Egypt is. That is a bloody door. It is childbirth. The God's firstborn son comes into the world as Israel goes through that bloody door with the lamb's blood around the doorposts. A nation is born at that time. They come in through the proper door. So the proper entry into the sheepfold is through natural birth. 
because anybody else that comes in in any other way is a thief, a liar, and a robber. That's what Yeshua said this morning. And does not have dominion. So in order for Yeshua to be eligible legitimately to take dominion, he has to be born of a woman. And, of course, he was. What that makes him is a brother, in that we are all, in a sense, children of Adam. And that's what the first three or four chapters of Hebrews talks about, is that he is, in fact, our brother, and we are in his family. He gave us the ability and the authority to become sons of God, because he is the son of God. So we are brothers, he is the son of God, and we are brothers, we can therefore become children of God. So what Yeshua does is he dies and is raised again from the dead. And in that, he then becomes the first fruits of the resurrection. And it says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, I believe, that if Satan had realized that killing Yeshua and having him raised from the dead would allow the Gentiles to come in, he never would have done it. And this was a mystery and a secret that was known to God alone from before the beginning of the world, that Yeshua was going to do this. And in that process then, instead of just the Jews or the Hebrews, everybody would then have the ability to become children of God. So what happens now is the book of Hebrews talks about priesthood. And what it talks about is the Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron. And the first thing it says about the priesthood is you don't get to choose to be a priest. Nobody who's a priest gets to be chosen. God chooses who his priests will be. So of the order of Aaron, you have to be a physical descendant of Aaron, and you have to be a male. If you meet those two requirements, you can be a priest. If you don't meet those two requirements, it doesn't matter how pious you are. It doesn't matter how well you can quote scripture. It doesn't matter how good you are. You cannot be a priest, period. You can't take a test. You can't do anything to become a priest if you are not born descendant of Aaron. So what Hebrew says is, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Messiah, Yeshua, is not a son of Aaron. Therefore, he cannot be a priest according to the order of Aaron because he is not born of Levi. In fact, it says in there that if he wanted to go in and sacrifice in the temple, he would be barred because he's not qualified. But we can now go back to Psalm 110 where God says through David, you are my son, today I have begotten you, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that takes you back to today's Torah portion where Abraham meets Melchizedek who is described as a priest of God Most High, El Elyon. So this guy Melchizedek is in fact a legitimate priest. And this guy Melchizedek is somebody who was chosen by God to be a priest because the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that you don't get to volunteer to be a priest. You have to be chosen by God. So just like Balaam is a legitimate prophet, Balaam is a legitimate, dyed-in-the-wool, 100% genuine prophet of God. He's also a snake, but he's a prophet. Melchizedek, similarly, is a 
priest, but not of the order of Aaron. In fact, the book of Hebrews makes a point that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, the priests, according to the order of Aaron, in a sense, got the blessing from the priest according to the order of Melchizedek because the sons of Aaron were still in Abraham's loins when he was blessed. The idea then is Melchizedek is a priest of a higher order than Aaron because Melchizedek blessed the great-grandfather of Aaron. And because he did, that says that Melchizedek then becomes a higher order of priest because the higher blesses the lower. So we have this guy Melchizedek, and one of the things that the book of Hebrews makes a big deal about is this guy's got no genealogy. Everybody else of any consequence in Scripture has got this long pedigree, and I talked this morning why that's really important. I mean, it's really important that we know that the Jews that we know today are, in fact, legitimate descendants of Abraham. Melchizedek just sort of pops into existence when he shows up to bless Abraham, and then he pops out of existence, and we never hear from him again, and it says in Hebrews 7, without beginning and without end. So the idea here is this guy Melchizedek has no beginning and has no end. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what we've established is that Melchizedek is a priest, Melchizedek is a priest of a higher order than Aaron. Melchizedek has no genealogy, which is to say he just sort of pops into existence and we never see him again. So then the next thing that happens in Psalm 110 is David calling his son Lord. The Lord has said to my Lord, calling his son Lord, has said that his greater son will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews explicitly says a couple of things. Thing one is that the priests according to the order of Aaron are really important because they're our brothers. And as they are ministering to God, because they are our brothers and because they sin just like we sin, they can have sympathy with us for whom they are sacrificing. In other words, we're all human, we're all brothers, and that means that the religious hierarchy that's doing the service of God understands the problems of the people who are coming to the temple. That's really important. Yeshua is just like us, except he doesn't sin. He's not sinful, but he's been subjected to every temptation that we've been subjected to. He happened to have conquered them all, but he understands them. So just like the order of Aaron understands us, so does the order of Melchizedek understand us. Furthermore, it says that he died and was raised from the dead, and in that he becomes the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. And what he does there is he ensures that we understand that there is going to be a resurrection. And since we're his brothers, we're going to participate in that resurrection. Furthermore, he says by his example, what he has done is he has destroyed the power of death 
to cause fear in us. That's Hebrews 2.15. And what he says is, all of us who are enslaved by the fear of death need fear it no more. Which means he's busted us out of slavery to the fear of death. In other words, one of the things that Satan uses is the fear of death to enslave us. And by his example of resurrection, and we see that he came back, and we see that death is not permanent, and we see that death has no dominion, that breaks that hold that Satan has on us. The next thing it does is it makes a big deal out of the fact that he is not a priest according to the order of Aaron, and he is not authorized to sacrifice in the temple. But it also says that the temple or the tabernacle is a copy of the original which is in heaven. We know that from two sources. We know that from the book of Hebrews. We also know that from the book of Exodus, where Moses comes down and he gets told by God, make it according to the pattern of the one you saw when you were up here with me. So the temple on earth is a copy of one in heaven. And what Hebrews then says is he is not authorized to sacrifice in the temple on earth, but he is authorized to sacrifice on the one of which the earthly one is a copy in heaven. So he's authorized to sacrifice at the temple in heaven, and the sacrifice that he brings is his own blood. And that means that that order of Melchizedek, that priesthood, is an order with one member. The order of Aaron has thousands of members as descendants of Aaron's go down. But the order of Melchizedek has only one member. He only has one sacrifice. He only has one venue for that sacrifice. And that sacrifice is done once. And then he's done and sits down. Now I will skip out of the Bible and into metaphysics. Buy this one or not. I believe that the temple in heaven is outside of time. Time is a created thing. In other words, God, when he created the heavens and the earth, said, in the beginning. That is the beginning of time. So time itself is a created thing. So I am of the opinion that the altar in heaven is outside of the time stream that we are in, which means that the sacrifice of Yeshua at that altar suffices for Adam, it suffices for David, it suffices for Isaiah, it suffices for John, it suffices for you, it suffices for your children, and it suffices for everybody because it is not bound in time. Because normally you sacrifice for a sin past. It is not acceptable for me to take a goat up there and say, uh, hey, I'm going to do some heavy sinning next week. Let's go ahead and get this sacrifice taken care of right now, and I'll go sin next week because it's covered. Everybody knows that's ridiculous. And so in order for that sacrifice to be effective, because it took place before I ever committed my first sin, I was not even born when that sacrifice took place. So if it is not outside of time for all time, then that sacrifice does not cover your sins, because your sins happened after the sacrifice. So I'm asserting that the order of Melchizedek has one member, that there is one venue where he sacrifices, which is the altar in heaven, that there is one sacrifice made, and only one, and that is for all time, and I am suggesting that that's done. There are three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. What we've done is we have talked about two different priesthoods. 
There must be a third priesthood. We are the third order of priesthood. The priesthood of all believers. Remember, all your Christian friends will say, well, I'm a priest. But they're confused. They're confused as to order, and they are confused as to venue. We've gone through a whole lot here establishing that we have at least two orders of priesthood. We have the order of Melchizedek, and we have the order of Aaron. Those two orders of priesthood have a different table of sacrifice. They have a different venue of sacrifice, different purpose for their sacrifices. They are completely orthogonal. In other words, they do not interfere with each other. So what I'm asserting is that there is a third order of priesthood and there is a third venue. And the third order of priesthood is the priesthood of all believers. And our venue is the body of Messiah. And the sacrifice that we're authorized to bring is the sacrifice of praise. So Yeshua, order of Melchizedek, is the only sacrifice in Scripture for willful sin. If you go back to the tables of sacrifice in Leviticus, there is no sacrifice for willful sin. So, for example, if you murder somebody, there is nowhere in there that says, all right, this is the sacrifice you bring for murder. No, you get stoned. So David, when he sins with Bathsheba, says, we both know, God, that there's no sacrifice that's going to clear this. Because if there was, I got a whole nation full of bulls and goats. The only thing you're going to accept from me is a broken heart. And then, once you've accepted my broken heart, then I will come into the set temple with joy and offer you countless sacrifices. So Yeshua's sacrifice, the sacrifice of Messiah, the sacrifice of the order of Melchizedek, is the only sacrifice that covers willful sin, murder, rape, all those sins, that, when you confess them, those sins are covered by his blood. And his blood is the only thing that will cover those sins. Now, if you make a mistake with respect to the temple, you bring a lame offering, or you do something that's covered by the table of sacrifice in the tabernacle, bring that sacrifice, because Yeshua's sacrifice doesn't cover that one. Two different orders of priesthood, two different venues of sacrifice, two different tables of sacrifice. If you want to give a thank offering or a peace offering or any of those kinds of things, Yeshua doesn't handle that. Give that to my boy Aaron. He handles that part of the franchise. And those sacrifices are perfectly appropriate and perfectly acceptable, and they in no way interfere with the sacrifice that Yeshua made because his sacrifice is for willful sin. So we've got two orders of priesthood that we've nailed. I'm asserting since we have three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have a third order of priesthood. And that third order of priesthood will have a different venue, and that third order of priesthood will have a different table of sacrifice. Because the first two are different. And I will suggest that the Father and the Son are covered in the first two orders of priesthood, which leaves the Spirit. And what I will suggest then is that the Spirit, as he dwells in and among us, we then become priests according to that third order. We are not authorized to sacrifice on the tabernacle, and certainly our personal blood would not be sufficient in the altar in heaven. Not qualified in either case. So the only thing we've got left, and it's scriptural, is we bring the sacrifice of praise. And we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, building up the body. Remember I started this off with early in the Bible there seems to have been a great deal of porosity 
between the spiritual world and the physical world. And we have angelic beings that are walking around among us and everybody starts chatting with them and so forth. And it's only about three quarters of the way through the conversation that they realize, oh, this is not human. I'm not talking to a man, I'm talking to something else. And so Yeshua, according to scripture, has existed since the founding. In fact, God built the universe through him. So yes, Melchizedek could have been without father and without mother, but when he became incarnate and became the Yeshua we know of, the only way he's legitimate is if he comes through the proper door, which is birth child. Let us shine.